Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the Scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for February 8th through 14th, 2021. This is covering Doctrine and Covenants sections 12 and 13, and the rest of Joseph Smith history, verses 66 to 75. And now, let's bring out the star of the show, the Scriptures. Scriptures, I can't wait to find out what you're going to teach us today. <sighs> Always so great when they arrive. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 15 minutes, 31 seconds. And what does that break down into daily? That would be 2 minutes, 13 seconds. Easy reading. Mm-hmm. Means more time for study. Now, I should point out that this reading time includes the Joseph Smith History endnote. So this is after verse 75. There is an asterisk that includes a quote from Oliver Cowdery from the Messenger and Advocate in October 1834. It's kind of lengthy, but well worth reading, and I've included that as part of this. It's neat to have that other perspective as well. Very neat. All right, we've got time codes here if you want to take it section by section. Before we get started, we've been talking about lots of resources, and let me remind you of one that we talked about recently in your Gospel Library app, but also on the website, too. If you go to a particular section, like today we'll be in section 13, you can click on a little icon in the upper right-hand corner, and it will take you to resources the church has that gives you more information on the Revelation and context. So it's built right in. It's a really great resource. But if you didn't know already, Book of Mormon Central has been expanding. There's Pearl of Great Price Central. A lot of that's still under construction, but some good resources there. And there is Doctrine and Covenants Central. Now, you can link to a lot of that stuff right from going to the Book of Mormon Central website. But if you thought they had great resources last year, they are piling it on this year. There are so many things to watch and to read and to learn. So we're really encouraging you to check it out. They've got great LDS scholars who are working with them to provide all sorts of great resources. Definitely, if you want a deeper dive than what we do, really recommend getting over to Doctrine and Covenants Central. They've even got reading plans, so they give you an idea of what you can read on a particular day and then articles that can help to augment that reading per day. So it's this built-in study program, really useful, highly recommended. They do great work. Well, now let's get to the lesson. So just a quick recap. We left off with Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery starting to translate the Book of Mormon there in Harmony, Pennsylvania. So now it is May 1829, and let's start with Doctrine and Covenants, Section 12. So Section 12, we are introduced to a new character in church history, and there are a lot of characters in church history. We'll try to distinguish them as best we can. This is a very special person named Joseph Knight Sr. So who is that, Jay? Well, if we turn to Revelations in Context, this is one of the resources the church provides. We get some great information on Joseph Knight Sr., and 
his family. Let's read. In the autumn of 1826, a prominent landowner in Colesville, New York, by the name of Joseph Knight Sr., hired 20-year-old Joseph Smith as a laborer. Knight owned four farms, a grain mill, and two carding machines, which prepared wool, cotton, and other materials for spinning. His son, Joseph Knight Jr., later wrote, quote, My father said Joseph Smith was the best hand he ever hired, close quote, adding that Joseph told him and his father, quote, that he had seen a vision, that a personage had appeared to him and told him where there was a gold book of ancient date buried, and if he would follow the directions of the angel, he could get it. My father and I believed what he told us. I think we were the first after his father's family. Close quote. The Knights proved to be loyal friends. Joseph Knight Sr. was present at the Smith home along with another friend of the Smiths, Josiah Stowell. In Manchester, New York, on September 22, 1827, the day Joseph obtained the gold plates and the Urim and Thummim. Knight became one of the first to hear about these artifacts when Joseph pulled him aside and told him that the Urim and Thummim was marvelous and enabled him to see anything. He also said the plates, which appeared to be gold, were written in characters, and he wanted them translated. The translation took place in Harmony, Pennsylvania, where Joseph and his wife Emma had purchased a house and property from Emma's parents. Knights lived about 30 miles to the north and played a crucial role in the translation. Speaking of Joseph Knight Sr., Joseph wrote, quote, He very kindly and considerately brought us a quantity of provisions in order that we might not be interrupted in the work of translation. Close quote. Knight recalled providing a barrel of mackerel and some lined paper for writing, and some nine or ten bushels of grain and some five or six bushels of taters, potatoes, and a pound of tea. Now, that may seem odd to modern members of the church, but let's bear in mind that the Word of Wisdom, or Doctrine and Covenants, Section 89, would not be received for another four years. Well, and it wouldn't be considered a commandment for much longer than that. True, but we'll talk about that in a later lesson. Indeed. Let's continue. Joseph Knight Jr. remembered that at one point during the translation, Joseph needed $50, apparently to make a payment on the property he and Emma had purchased. Knight wrote, quote, My father could not raise it, the money. He then came to me. The same day I sold my house lot and sent him, Joseph Smith, a one-horse wagon. Close quote. About this same time, Joseph Knight Sr. became anxious to know his duty in the Lord's work. Joseph inquired of the Lord and received a revelation now known as Doctrine and Covenants 12. Now, it may be difficult to keep track of a lot of the figures that show up in early church history, and it's certainly sometimes a struggle to remember, okay, well, this person started out being supportive of the church. Did he stay faithful to the church, or was there problems? Did he leave the church and then come back? Joseph Knight has been loyal to the church all throughout. Is really a neat story, and for more information about the Knight family in church history, there are a couple of Enzyme articles that we'll include links of in the description. One is from the October 1978 Enzyme and the other from January 1989. They're great articles, and they were a great family. So starting in Doctrine and Covenants section 12, we start with the first six verses, and they should read very familiar to you. They're very similar to wording that is used in Doctrine and Covenants sections 4, 6, and 11 that we've already gone over. 
So let's take a look at the unique verses. These are verses 7 through 9. Starting with verse 7. Behold, I speak unto you and also all those who have desires to bring forth and establish this work. And no one can assist in this work except he shall be humble and full of love, having faith, hope, and charity, being temperate in all things whatsoever shall be entrusted to his care. Speaking of Joseph Knight Sr., the seminary manual has a little paragraph about that and how he consistently tried to develop and practice these righteous characteristics. He gave temporal and spiritual assistance to Joseph Smith throughout the prophet's ministry. Many years after Joseph Smith received the revelation recorded here in Doctrine and Covenants 12, he recorded the following regarding Joseph Knight's faithfulness. Quote, Joseph Knight Sr. has been faithful and true and even-handed and exemplary and virtuous and kind, never deviating to the right hand or to the left. He is a righteous man. Close quote. And this is from the History of the Church, Volume 5. Now, if we look at those traits, that no one can assist in this work except he shall be humble and full of love, having faith, hope, and so forth, that how are we doing in developing these characteristics in our life? These were the key characteristics that the Lord identified for Joseph Knight Sr. And I think as we look at them, and as we look at the example of the Knight family, here again, I'll encourage you to check out those Enzyme articles to get to know them better. We should be asking, how are we doing with that? How are we doing with those characteristics? There is a quote that I found in the Institute Manual in which then-elder Spencer W. Kimball can give us a little bit more definition and encouragement, especially where humility is concerned. This is from a BYU speech given on the 16th of January, 1963. He says, quote, If the Lord was meek and lowly and humble, then to become humble, one must do what he did in boldly denouncing evil, bravely advancing righteous works, courageously meeting every problem, becoming the master of himself and the situations about him, and being near oblivious to personal credit. Humble and meek properly suggest virtues, not weaknesses. They suggest a consistent mildness of temper and an absence of wrath and passion. Humility suggests no affectation, no bombastic actions. It is not turbid nor grandiloquent. It is not servile submissiveness. It is not cowed nor frightened. No shadow or the shaking of a leaf terrorizes it. How does one get humble? To me, one must constantly be reminded of his dependence. On whom dependent? On the Lord. How remind oneself? By real, constant, worshipful, grateful prayer. End quote. This idea may seem in some respects counterintuitive, but like Elder Kimball was saying in here, you don't have meekness because you have no power. You have meekness because you do have power, and it's under perfect control. Otherwise, it's just weakness. And the same with humility. If you have skills and powers intellectually or physically or whatever, and choose then not to seek 
credit for yourself, not to draw attention to yourself and so forth, then that's humility. These aren't traits that you're forced into because you have no other recourse. These are things that you choose to be when you could be something else. So agreed with that these are virtues, not weaknesses. And if we look at the last verse in this revelation, verse 9, Behold, I am the light and the life of the world that speak these words. Therefore, give heed with your might, and then you are called. Amen. It's interesting that these last several revelations have been about calling. In Doctrine and Covenants section 4, Joseph Smith Sr., and in section 11, Hiram Smith, all dealt with that notion of being called. And here again, also the declaration of who, in fact, is speaking, just to be very clear, the light and the life of the world. This is Jesus Christ. And this is such great direction for us to receive when figuring out what our calling is. And by that, I mean, what does the Lord want us to do in the kingdom? Each one of us is going to have a different place, a unique set of resources and gifts that we can share to bless in this great work. I'm reminded, speaking of Joseph Knight Sr., of the restoration of his home in, well, what's currently Nineveh, New York, but it was formerly Colesville, New York. And this journey began with three families from Arizona, the Meachams, the Glens, and the Painters, who in 2006 received a spiritual prompting that they needed to restore and preserve that home. And so it was, they did this great work more than a decade in the making in order to provide this as a church historical site to restore the house so that we can actually go, as of 2016, you can go and visit the Joseph Knight Sr. home in New York. So who knows what the Lord will call us to do? But if we want to be ready for that calling, we need to remember who is speaking these words of counsel, and then we need to give heed to them with our might. And then we will be ready for whatever the Lord calls us to do, big or small. Well said. Well, let's skip a minute to Joseph Smith history in the Pearl of Great Price. Okay, so we're starting with verse 66. 66 and 67 set the stage for the arrival of Oliver Cowdery, and we've talked about that already in our lesson with Doctrine and Covenants section 6 through 9. Oliver Cowdery came to visit Joseph on April 5th, 1829, and on April 7th, translation continued, and Oliver was the scribe. That brings us to verse 68. So, in verse 68... We still continue the work of translation when, in the ensuing month, May 1829, we, on a certain day, went into the woods to pray and inquire of the Lord respecting baptism for the remission of sins that we found mentioned in the translation of the plates. So I love that we already have a purpose for this prayer. How many times do the scriptures open the door to the receipt of revelation? And here it is. We have so many examples in church history and the Doctrine and Covenants, but here it is again. They were learning about baptism while translating the plates. Going on. While we were thus employed, praying and calling upon the Lord, a messenger from heaven descended in a cloud of light, and having laid his hands upon us, he ordained us, saying... Now this brings us not only to verse 69, but this is also Doctrine and Covenants section 13. Right. Now, before we go on, I'd like to point out that this is Joseph's account, 
if you take a look at Oliver's account, this is the first time he's seen an angel. And how he describes it is he's very excited. <laughs> so as much as this seems a little more commonplace to Joseph, this is brand new and incredibly exciting to Oliver. But going on. And what Jay is referring to is the end note at the end of Joseph Smith history. We'll get yeah. a little bit of that a little later in the lesson. Section 13, upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys. Well, all right. So we've already got a couple of things that we should talk about here. Some of this feels common knowledge to us today. This is all brand new here. So let's talk about each of the elements of this revelation, because we're talking in here about a key doctrine mentioned in section 13, which is, well, keys. So Bruce R. McConkie in Mormon Doctrine offers this information regarding keys. He says, quote, two different usages of the term keys are found in the revelations. One has reference to the directive powers whereby the church or kingdom and all its organizations are governed. The keys of the kingdom being powers of presidency. The other usage refers to the means provided whereby something is revealed, discovered, or made manifest. Well, and let's clarify something, too. We're talking about the priesthood of Aaron, and later we'll be referring to the sons of Levi. In the Institute Manual, there's a quote that I got from President Joseph Fielding Smith from Church History and Modern Revelation, in which he clarifies those terms so that we understand. He says, quote, After the children of Israel came out of Egypt, and while they were sojourning in the wilderness, Moses received a commandment from the Lord to take Aaron and his sons and ordain them and consecrate them as priests for the people. At that time, the males of the entire tribe of Levi were chosen to be the priests instead of the firstborn of all the tribes. And Aaron and his sons were given the presidency over the priesthood thus conferred. Since that time, it has been known as the priesthood of Aaron, including the Levitical priesthood, end quote. Okay, let's continue. Let me redo what we just read. Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys, okay, we're up to that point, of the ministering of angels. Now, the seminary manual quotes George Q. Cannon in his book, the Gospel Truth, on how we might define what an angel is. The word angel, he says, is used in the scriptures for any heavenly being bearing God's message. Now, if you want one talk that is the best single talk about understanding this section, Doctrine and Covenants 13, then you need to look up, well, we'll link to it, Elder Dallin H. Oaks, The Aaronic Priesthood and the Sacrament in the October 1998 General Conference. I kept looking through that talk, and it was very hard to not just quote the whole talk. So if you're interested more on this topic, that's the talk for you. But let me share some parts of it. He says, as a young holder of the Aaronic priesthood, I did not think I would see an angel. And I wondered what such appearances had to do with the Aaronic priesthood. But the ministering of angels can also be unseen. Angelic messages can be delivered by a voice or merely by thoughts or feelings communicated to the mind. 
Elder Jeffrey R. Holland talks about this further in a talk called A Standard Unto My People. It's a 1994 CES symposium. He starts by quoting Alma 32:23. He says, And now he imparteth his word by angels unto men. Yea, not only men, but women also. Now this is not all. Little children do have words given unto them many times, which confound the wise and the learned. Now you may have noticed in there, these words come by angels to men, women, and children. Elder Holland comments on it this way. He says, quote, Perhaps more of us could literally, or at least figuratively, behold the angels around us if we would but awaken from our stupor and hear the voice of the Spirit as those angels try to speak. Close quote. Now let's go back to the Revelation. So we have the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. From the same talk that Jay talked about from Elder Dallin H. Oaks, this is October 1998 General Conference. Elder Oaks tells us, quote, what does it mean that the Aaronic priesthood holds the key of the gospel of repentance and of baptism and of the remission of sins? The meaning is found in the ordinance of baptism and in the sacrament. Baptism is for the remission of sins, and the sacrament is a renewal of the covenants and blessings of baptism. Both should be preceded by repentance. We cannot overstate the importance of the Aaronic priesthood in this. Through the Aaronic priesthood ordinances of baptism and the sacrament, we are cleansed of our sins and promised that if we keep our covenants, we will always have his spirit to be with us. I believe that promise not only refers to the Holy Ghost, but also to the ministering of angels. For angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, wherefore they speak the words of Christ. So it is that those who hold the Aaronic priesthood open the door for all church members who worthily partake of the sacrament to enjoy the companionship of the Spirit of the Lord and the ministering of angels. End quote. That's rather exciting to think about that. Let's go on. Doctrine and Covenants 13 ends like this. And this shall never be taken again from the earth until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. Now, this is not a particularly well understood section, but I want to offer some resources for you. A couple of quotes that we can get from the church manuals, like Institute and Seminary, offer some insights from Joseph Smith and Joseph Fielding Smith. First, Joseph Smith from History of the Church. Quote, These sacrifices, as well as every ordinance belonging to the priesthood, will, when the temple of the Lord shall be built, and the sons of Levi be purified, be restored and attended to in all their powers, ramifications, and blessings. It is not to be understood that the law of Moses will be established again, with all its rites and variety of ceremonies. This has never been spoken of by the prophets. But those things which existed prior to Moses' day, namely sacrifice, will be continued. Close quote. Now, Joseph Fielding Smith also suggested that the law of sacrifice will have to be restored or all things which were decreed by the Lord would not be restored. 
If these offerings consist of blood sacrifices as the Levites practiced anciently, it will only be temporary. President Smith believed that blood sacrifices will be performed long enough to complete the fullness of the restoration in this dispensation. Afterwards, the sacrifice will be of some other character, such as a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Now, there are some other ways to understand these concepts. Doctrine and Covenants Central offers two articles, both of which I'd recommend and both of which have an interesting take on this. Casey Paul Griffiths, who's an LDS scholar, and we'll put the links in the description. And then also Stephen C. Harper, who we've mentioned before. He's a professor at BYU, but also in the church's historical department, has a really interesting connection with understanding those phrases in conjunction with Doctrine and Covenants 84 and 128. And we're going to talk about that more when we get to those sections. But if you're interested in looking up some information before then, I'm going to recommend these two articles as very insightful. So we've covered Doctrine and Covenants sections 12 and 13. Let's go back to Joseph Smith history. So John the Baptist has just given us the text of section 13. In verse 70, he said, This Aaronic priesthood had not the power of laying on hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, but that this should be conferred on us hereafter. And he commanded us to go and be baptized, and gave us directions that I should baptize Oliver Cowdery, and that afterwards he should baptize me. Now, isn't that interesting? Why should Oliver Cowdery be the first baptized in this dispensation? You might think, well, Joseph should be the first baptized. You know, he's kind of been the head of all of this. But this teaches us a little something about the service of the priesthood. And that is, it's not about you. The interesting thing is that priesthood should be exercised first, and the ordinance should be given to bless someone else. So Joseph was the first to exercise that authority, but Oliver was the first to be baptized in this dispensation as a blessing resulting from service of that authority. It's a very good point. Ponder, if you will, all of the priesthood ordinances. Do any of them bless the administrator of that ordinance? It is always given to someone else. Verse 71, Accordingly, we went and were baptized. I baptized him first, and afterwards he baptized me, after which I laid my hands upon his head and ordained him to the Aaronic priesthood. And afterwards he laid his hands on me and ordained me to the same priesthood. For so we were commanded. So again, who was the first to be ordained under the hands of a mortal man to the Aaronic priesthood? Well, it was Oliver, because the first person to serve using that priesthood was Joseph. And then in verse 72, The messenger who visited us on this occasion and conferred this priesthood upon us said that his name was John, the same that is called John the Baptist in the New Testament, and that he acted under the direction of Peter, James, and John, who held the keys of the priesthood of Melchizedek, which priesthood, he said, would in due time be conferred on us, and that I should be called the first elder of the church, and he, Oliver Cowdery, the second. It was on the 15th day of May, 1829, that we were ordained under the hand of this messenger and baptized. 
That is very exciting. That's one of the few moments in early church history that we actually have an exact date on. Yeah. The later restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood, we don't actually know exactly when that was. It was sometime in late May or early June, but that was a very, very significant event. Yep. Now, this brings us to the Joseph Smith history endnote that John referred to before. This is an excerpt from the October 1834 Messenger and Advocate, and let's look at this from Oliver Cowdery's perspective as he shares his thoughts on these events. He says, On reflecting further, it was as easy to be seen that amid the great strife and noise concerning religion, none had authority from God to administer the ordinances of the gospel. For the question might be asked, have men authority to administer in the name of Christ who deny the revelations when his testimony is no less than the spirit of prophecy and his religion based, built, and sustained by immediate revelations in all ages of the world when he has had a people on earth? If these facts were buried and carefully concealed by men whose craft would have been in danger if once permitted to shine in the faces of men, they were no longer to us. And we only waited for the commandment to be given, arise and be baptized. This was not long desired before it was realized. The Lord, who is rich in mercy and ever willing to answer the consistent prayer of the humble, after we had called upon him in a fervent manner, aside from the abodes of men, condescended to manifest to us his will. On a sudden, as from the midst of eternity, the voice of the Redeemer spake peace to us, while the veil was parted and the angel of God came down clothed with glory and delivered the anxiously looked-for message. And the keys of the gospel of repentance, what joy, what wonder, what amazement, while the world was racked and distracted, while millions were groping as the blind for the wall, and while all men were resting upon uncertainty, as a general mass, our eyes beheld, our ears heard, as in the blaze of day, yes, more, above the glitter of the May sunbeam, which then shed its brilliancy over the face of nature. Then his voice, though mild, pierced to the center, and his words, I am thy fellow servant, dispelled every fear. We listened. We gazed. We admired. T'was the voice of an angel from glory. T'was a message from the Most High. And as we heard, we rejoiced. While his love enkindled upon our souls and we were wrapped in the vision of the Almighty, where was room for doubt? Nowhere. Uncertainty had fled. Doubt had sunk no more to rise, while fiction and deception had fled forever. But, dear brother, think. Further think for a moment what joy filled our hearts, and with what surprise we must have bowed. For who would not have bowed the knee for such a blessing? when we received under his hand the holy priesthood. I shall not attempt to paint to you the feelings of this heart, 
nor the majestic beauty and glory which surrounded us on this occasion. But you will believe me when I say that earth nor men with the eloquence of time cannot begin to clothe language in as interesting and sublime a manner as this holy personage. No, nor has this earth power to give the joy, to bestow the peace or comprehend the wisdom which was contained in each sentence as they were delivered by the power of the Holy Spirit. Gotta love Oliver Cowdery. Well, what an insight that we never would have when Joseph just says, eh, an angel came. Like, you know, <laughs> this is just a thing for Joseph. It's a thing. And this last phrase in which he says that we can't comprehend the wisdom that was contained in each sentence as they were delivered by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we go on, I think Joseph Smith will help clarify what that means. There was a quote that I was reminded of from Elder Bruce R. McConkie. This is from the April 1983 General Conference in talking about the significance of this event. He says, quote, Now for the first time in nearly 1,700 years, there are mortal men on earth who can stand in the place of the Lord Jesus in ministering for the salvation of men. The hour is at hand when the gloom of sullen darkness will be pierced and the light of heaven again shine forth on our benighted planet, End quote. So let's look for these blessings, how amazing this is. And again, love Oliver's description. Look for the blessings in verse 73. He says, immediately on our coming up out of the water, after we had been baptized, we experienced great and glorious blessings from our Heavenly Father. No sooner had I baptized Oliver Cowdery than the Holy Ghost fell upon him and he stood up and prophesied many things which should shortly come to pass. And again, as soon as I had been baptized by him, I also had the spirit of prophecy. When standing up, I prophesied concerning the rise of this church and many other things connected with the church and this generation of the children of men. We were filled with the Holy Ghost and rejoiced in the God of our salvation. He goes on in 74, and I think this is great because it's a great reminder to us about the way we understand spiritual things is through the Spirit. In 74, it says, Our minds being now enlightened, we began to have the Scriptures laid open to our understandings, and the true meaning and intention of their more mysterious passages revealed unto us in a manner which we never could attain to previously nor ever before had thought of. In other words, like Oliver said at the end of his, when the Spirit spoke Scripture, it's more than the words. They're now reading or having Scriptures unfolded to them and understanding their meanings in a way that they had never before even comprehended. What does this mean for our own Scripture study? Why do you think we need the Holy Ghost to help us understand Scriptures? Being in seminary, it's interesting to try to explain sometimes to students why it's so important to be there on time, because our devotional time, our time of song and prayer and preparing ourselves for spiritual learning, that's fundamental. We're not just learning facts. We're not just learning history. We're not just learning phrases and concepts and doctrines. We need to be taught Scripture by the power of the Holy Ghost, and that time to prepare is so important. What does it mean for our personal study? What does it mean for our family study? 
Why do you think we need the Holy Ghost to help us understand the scriptures? Well, these things that we just read, I think are some of the most powerful evidences for that, that we have in scripture. Going on in verse 74, in the meantime, we were forced to keep secret the circumstances of having received the priesthood and our having been baptized, owing to a spirit of persecution which had already manifested itself in the neighborhood. We had been threatened with being mobbed from time to time, and this too by professors of religion, and their intentions of mobbing us were only counteracted by the influence of my wife's father's family under divine providence. Remember that Emma's family wasn't necessarily too keen on them getting married. But look here, let's continue. Who had become very friendly to me and who were opposed to mobs and were willing that I should be allowed to continue the work of translation without interruption and therefore offered and promised us protection from all unlawful proceedings as far as in them lay. So these are people that never joined the church and yet here they were helping Joseph in a wonderful way, Emma's parents. Pretty neat. There's something gratifying, too, about the notion that while they may not have believed Joseph, while they may not have been really that pleased that he married Emma, at the same time, they didn't like mobs, and they knew the unjust treatment that he was receiving. And so they put those differences aside in order to protect a man from being unjustly treated. Yeah, you don't have to believe in someone's philosophies in order to want to protect them against unfairness and unlawful proceedings. Well, here it is. My goodness, we've had the priesthood restored, and Oliver is participating now in angelic visitations, and we're understanding it's the beginning of keys being restored and prepared to unlock a revelation, which will now begin to be poured out on the earth in preparation for the restoration of the gospel to, I guess, have some kind of official beginning with the establishment of the Church of Jesus Christ. So what does this mean to you? How have these teachings, how have these events blessed your life? Give that some thought, contemplate it, and then share it with family, with friends. How has this part of the restoration blessed you? Keep reading your scriptures. Our assignments this year are really not that long. Please take that time and remember what Jay had talked about as far as incorporating the Spirit in your scripture study. This is how the, quote, mysteries of God are unfolded unto you. Yeah. And we'll talk more about this at our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. <laughs>